Um, the Von Rumpel, the creepy German dude, he is German. driven by the sea of flames, the stone, even though he knows that it's supposed to, like, bring bad luck, bad luck to, like, the loved ones and the ones you're close to. And in the chapter where it's, like, labeled uh, music number three, he mentions his daughters, and even though, like, it would, like, bring bad luck to his daughters, he still wants the stone for himself to stay alive. Like, he's a very selfish Almost it's selfish, Can- but yeah. Cancer makes you do wild things, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I honestly kind of feel like von Rumpel is kind of a symbol for the Nazi Party as a whole. Because mm-hmm. he's doing all of these things that are bad for himself and for those around him, but he's being selfish and doesn't care. Yeah. He's li- Nazi Party literally is killing millions upon millions of people. Character time. I, I see what you're meaning. I see what you. I see what you're. He definitely is like. His character is definitely symbolic of a bigger thing, whether it's the Nazi Party or if it's specifically like Hitler per se. Yeah. Um, and you do see that going back to Haley's thing with like his daughters and stuff like that, and him wanting to get the stone specifically for his own good. You could relate that to Hitler throwing the Jews under the bus just so he could get the power that he wants, you know? We love skate. So you can <laughs> you can definitely make an argument for that kind of co- co- coalition. Not coalition. Comparison. Yeah. Coalition. Shut up. You should. Um, we can also talk about how, like, Werner and Marie, you know, like, they met in Saint-Malo. They got to meet, but... Finally! Finally! And Werner, like, sees Marie as kind of, like, a saving grace. Like, he's like, oh, my gosh, she's so beautiful. She's the one that's behind the radio. She's she's perfect, you know, which I found very interesting for them to, like, have just met, you know. But he it always, made me un- yeah. It made me uncomfortable at first because I was still think I was still envisioning them as little kids. And I was like, oh, wait, they're, like, 16 and 17 at this point. Never mind. They're, like, adults now. <laughs> like, European version of adults in the 1940s. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I thought it was very interesting that it was just so immediate that Werner was like, oh, yes, I love this girl. And I'm like, you just met her. But I guess she does. She is the one who saved them. She is the one who kept them alive by talking on the radio. Yeah, she is kind of like an angel to him. I guess he feels like he already knows her from listening to her talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, obviously, there's that thing of he's the she sorry, she's the answer to all of his basically his entire storyline yeah her and her family her storyline is the answer to his storyline all of several of his motives have been pushed by her storyline in some way whether it be through her uncle's tapes or uh or, or her crazy uncle doing something specifically or just her in general they have been related in a certain way do we have anything else for character no all right, moving on to setting. Identify and describe specific, sorry, specific textual details that convey or reveal a setting. Oh, so when post-war, you know, when Utah goes to France later, she is still mm-hmm. terrified. When she goes to France, they're going to, like, literally kill her because she's German. 
And this is happening years after the war. Like, she's a grown woman. Yeah, it's supposed to be in the 70s. Right. And she still has that fear of something, someone's going to know who she is, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, rightfully so. I mean, you read about what happened to her when she was in, like, Berlin, I think she was. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I I would have similar fears of all that junk happened to me. Just because I'm a German girl. (laughs) Especially, like... With all that stuff that happened with the Russian soldiers. Oh my god, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have peed myself. I wouldn't have even gone to France after everything that happened. Like, that just shows how willing she is to learn more about her brother and everything that happened. Yeah. Although her visit to France also kind of reveals a setting in a specific way. It reveals the time frame, kind of like, I'm jumping on what Sydney said in a way. Uh her going there and thinking, oh my god, they're all going to find out, but her going there and nobody knowing who she is, um, World War II already being treated as some, like, ancient history, and like, having inf- all this certain stuff in museums and stuff like that, but still, people are just now getting letters about people who have died in the war and stuff like that. Yeah. It really helps create a specific time frame without having to say, oh, it's 1976 or whatever. Yeah, like the town being that is very stored after the bombing. Mm-hmm. I love how it's 30 years post-war and people are still finding bodies, like people's family and like their stuff. But it's also really interesting. You get those small details, like um, I think it was at the end of the book, uh, Marie's grandson. I think it was. I want to say it was grandson. Like yes. about some like playing on the computer, and p- beating this like person on the computer or something like that. I was like, wait, she's still alive. Yeah, it was supposed to be in twenty fourteen, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And so, just like the little details like that that help you, that jump you forward in time without having to explicitly say it or anything like that, is absolutely wild to me, and I think is really cool. But Ashley does explicitly say what year they're in. Oh, no! Yeah, whenever it starts, like, section 12 or whatever, it says, whatever date, 2014. Oh. Well, you'll have to excuse me. I was crying the entire last section of the book, so I would <laughs> I probably missed a bunch. <laughs> it's in 1974 yeah. and 2014. Uh-huh. Two different time jumps. At the end? Yeah, I, I I too wept a little. I wept a lot. Anyways, uh <laughs> do we wanna move on do we wanna move on to plot, maybe? Possibly? Yeah. Alright. Explain the function of a significant event or related set of of significant events in a, in a plot. Well I was gonna say that since Werner and Marie met it kind of, like, proves the title, you know, like, all the light we cannot see, like, they are connected by the radio, and it shows that everyone is connected in some way, mm-hmm. you know, even if in the most unexpected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, when I looked at the plot in relation to the title, um, I saw it as a thing of Werner being this kind of almost, like, beacon of hope in a way and it he you could kind of say he almost he almost kind of ruined marie's 
how she envisioned like the Nazi army and stuff because he wasn't this crude soldier like with no heart or anything like that like the other soldiers that she had come into contact with and what she had been taught to think of them as he was just a sweet boy who was struggling to say stuff to her in French and was helping her uh, escape the city and stuff like that and so I related that back to being a thing of all the light we cannot see as all the good in the world that we that is overshadowed by what we assume mm-hmm. I just got it because I know that um, her great uncle, like Etienne's brother, mm-hmm. it, he says that specifically in his recording. All the light we cannot see when referring to radio waves. Okay. That's just yeah. the only reason I said that. Yeah, that makes sense. I see what you mean. And then I guess the other big uh, event thing, the, I guess you, I guess we got to talk about it eventually. Um, Werner's death kind of mm. being kind of creating a domino effect for the endings of the rest of the characters. We didn't have to talk about that yet. Like you we could have procrastinated that a little. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that conversation <laughs> yet, ma'am. <laughs> like you have Werner dying and then yeah. that leads to what's the dude's name? Vulcan Volkheimer. whatever. Volkheimer. Volkheimer? All right, thanks. Yes. <laughs> I can't pronounce words, so uh you it leads to him getting his satchel and the letter saying, hey, this dude has died. And then that leads to Volkheimer seeking out uh, Yuta and telling her, and that seeks, uh, goes to Yuta finding the little uh, house and her going to France and so on and so forth. So Werner's death, albeit incredibly sad and very sudden and random, actually has a huge function in creating a closure for the book in creating endings for all the other characters um you said that his death seemed like surprising and sudden but honestly Mm -hmm. i i thought it was very much so coming especially since he felt so safe i guess you could say around marie Mm -hmm. like he totally embraced his death like he was like okay it's my time i'm at peace i don't feel guilt anymore i know that i brought joy to at least someone during this time you know, like, yeah, I didn't think it was sudden at all. I thought that it was more planned on his part. There were definitely some hints in the way it was written specifically um, that made it feel like that he kind of knew what was going to happen and he just kind of let it happen. But at the same time, it also felt very much like he was just tired and he wasn't thinking clearly and it just kind of happened in a way. So I see both sides of it. I see how it could have been something kind of planned and expected and how it also could have just happened out of nowhere. Yeah, I just figured since he felt like weightless and, you know, things like that, he felt light as air, you know, things like that. I just figured he was like, okay, it's my time. And that dude was saying, like, stop, don't go near, but he didn't stop. I think he was just like, okay, peace out. Although, honestly, I I think if he didn't, if he didn't die in that way, he would have still died because he was sick. Yes. Yeah, he, he would have died in his sleep. So I do, I do think that that would have been his end, no matter what. It's mm-hmm. just sad. I want everyone to live happily ever after, and they didn't. It makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, his death was inevitable. Um, I th- so I think in a way they kind of did get a happy ending, just like if you compare the rest of the book, like how like bad each one of their situations were. Like, I mean, very died yes but like i think like he still got like 
he's like no longer. He got closure before he died, you know. Yeah, he mm-hmm. got to meet Marie. He got to know who was talking on the radio. He got he got to talk on the radio. He knew deep down that his sister didn't hate him. He did something good for others, and he rebelled against the Nazi party. Like he got as much closure as he was ever going to get. He knew he was probably never going to see his sister mm-hmm. again. Yeah, and that was that was his closure. Everyone else lived on and had families. But that wasn't, that just wasn't something that was meant for Werner. I'm going to segue this conversation into narrative, considering we're already on the topic of what we had written for narrative, for narrator. Uh, mm-hmm. Identify and explain the function of point of view in a narrative. Sydney had something to say about the POV shifting after Werner's death, if you want to take yeah. over that. I thought it was very interesting that after he died, it went straight into Yuta's point of view, and we had never seen that before, and it also went into Volkheimer's. I just think it proves how connected all of the characters were to Werner specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because after he died, it goes immediately to his sister and his best friend. Like I I thought it was very neat that we got to see that. And also with Yuta's point of view, I was definitely taken aback whenever it showed how strong she was and how she wasn't nearly as innocent as Werner had always portrayed her right. in the book. Yeah, like, like she was like, should I take the stuff from the dead bodies, you know, and whenever like the, the Russian soldiers came, she wasn't nearly as upset or scared as I figured that she would. She seemed to almost accept it. Mm-hmm. No matter how sad that is, it, she kind of did accept it. Not that she wanted it, you know, but. Well, yeah. Yeah, but I just meant she, she didn't freak out like the rest of them. Right. I just thought that was interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I definitely thought I definitely uh, thought it was a very good closure of them moving, of sh- them shifting the point of view to uh, Juta and Volkheimer and uh, his best friend and all these other characters. The fact that they didn't stick really to one specific person, they kind of jumped around a bit to close off every story, felt really... It felt very, um, like, in place. <laughs> it felt like it was perfectly timed after his death. Because, going back to Sydney's thing, it helped remind everyone, like, every all of these characters were connected through yeah. him. And they got to where they were because of him. Whether his part was something super huge or just, just a minor little point in yeah. time, you know. Right. Do we want to move on to symbols? I guess so. Yes. All right. We can move on to symbols then. Explain the function of specific words and phrases in a text. I mean, obviously, you've got the big thing of you've got the big thing of all the light, kind of referring to how everyone is connected in this book, physically through radios, but also just kind of in life and in their individual stories being connected mm-hmm. through pretty much our two main characters, Marie and Werner. Yeah. I think it was when Werner died, right? From when we were talking earlier. Um, he died in like an early spring type of deal. Like getting reborn and going into the afterlife. Um, yeah. Funky, fun, fun little symbol mm-hmm. there. <laughs> 
And then at the end, um, part 13, where Marie is talking with her grandson, Michael, it's in early spring, too, Mm -hmm. for the new beginnings. Yeah. Yeah. This book is very focused on seasons. It's very Mm -hmm. focused on, like, the difference between winter and spring. I've noticed, I noticed that in earlier sections, that a lot of the, like, characters' kind of lowest moments were in kind of, like, winter, late fall, and then towards the end of the book, as they're coming to their conclusion, you're getting a lot more spring and new beginnings and uh, starting over and stuff like that. Because you see books that will talk about seasons, kind of, like, go on one specific season, but I don't as often see books that are that focus on coming from one season into the next like that transition you know so I thought that was Mm -hmm. very very interesting (laughs) oh another really cool symbol that I liked about the book uh was like the whelk and like the references to seashells and all of that because you know being strong independent like a whelk Marie's like, I have to be strong. I am the Welk. And you can see throughout mm-hmm. the the novel how she gets stronger and turns more into that persona as she fights against World War as she fights against the Nazis, Nazi in her own special way in the resistance and helping Etienne um by getting the bread. And just like mm-hmm. see her throughout the novel become a very strong person. And then she grows up and becomes a scientist and studies more seashells and mollusks and becomes awesome. And I love her. <laughs> she becomes her she own, becomes Captain, her own Nemo. Captain Nemo. <laughs> taking that, taking that straight into comparisons, that last bit, straight into comparisons, identify and explain the function of a metaphor. Let's talk about uh, <laughs> Captain Nemo and <laughs> him being a huge <laughs> metaphor for Marie. Especially oh, yeah. towards, especially in the second and oh, third yeah, section of the book. Sure. <laughs> he definitely was just, at least for her, what she considered to be the image of strong, of strength in the face of, not really discrimination, but strength in the face of danger. And in mm-hmm. the face of, con- of, well, not quite controversy, but like, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that was a huge metaphor for her. Uh, and I believe... Yeah, especially since, like, her father was gone and he never came back. Like, she was like, I gotta take this on my own. I gotta look up to this hero, my boy, Nemo. Right. And you can even take it further as to um, the meta... Kind of, like, taking it further, not just Pat, not just Captain Nemo, but past that into her reading the book. As she's reading the book, she talks about pretty often how she doesn't know what's going to happen next. How they just keep going deeper and deeper into the sea and new troubles keep coming up and they keep having to do all this stuff to get rid of it. And I feel like that's kind of, in a way, that relates back to her experience in St. Malo having, coming off and everything's doing really great and then her dad leaves and then the, and then other people start leaving her and things start getting worse and the war keeps going is still going on and she's getting deeper and deeper into this troubled world. Yeah. 
And so I feel like that's mm-hmm. a very, I feel like that's a, I feel like it's a very complex metaphor. It's not just Captain Nemo. It branches off into a bigger meaning. Yeah. I also think that there's going on in, like, in Captain Nemo's world versus what's going on and what's happening. Um, I think it was around the time where it was just like, oh, do you think he survived? I think him and uh, Marie and Werner are having that conversation, when they were having that conversation about the books, like, do you think he survived and all of that? And they don't know if they're going to survive. Yeah, I also think it's kind of cool that since she was reading, you know, over the radio, mm-hmm. um, she was reading A Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and that's, like, the radio is what connects her to the rest of the world. She's kind of exploring through Captain Nemo to the rest yeah. of the world. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was kind of neat. It definitely is. It's a really, it's a very, really interesting metaphor, and it's one that like we could talk forever on if we had the opportunity because it's just so we much. Have another hour long podcast. <laughs> no. Um, All right. So are we ready to sign off? All right. I believe so. Okay. Well, thank you to whoever has been listening to this podcast. Thank you to Miss Chandler for letting us read this fabulous book it was so good i rated a solid nine out of ten uh <laughs> minus a point for Verna Diane. um and yeah so that is the last podcast for all the light we cannot see we will be back next time with the other book i think it's the poisonwood bible isn't that what it's called yeah all right so i guess tune in next time to four peeps and one brain cell so we can talk about the First section of that book. All right, signing out.